You are listening to Uncommentary. So I want to talk to you about one of my favorite bookstores. Hearts and Minds Books is located in Pennsylvania. I've never been there, but I met the owner, Byron Borger, online, I think via Twitter. And um, I want to tell you why I use Hearts and Minds as often as I can. Uh, First, I'm a huge fan of independent booksellers. Uh, You know as well as I that when the great behemoth Amazon finally uh, began its quest to take over the world, um, that it is easy to order from Amazon, have the books delivered directly to your door. Uh, But over the course of several years, as Amazon was growing, a lot of independent booksellers, mom-and-pop type shops, uh, they really suffered, and many of them went out of business. Well, there's been a resurgence, and I'm really glad about that. Uh, And one of my favorites is Hearts and Minds Minds Books. And so if you'll go to heartsandmindsbooks.com, now this is what's simple about it. You're not going to see an inventory page. You're not going to see – you don't shop on heartsandmindsbooks.com in the way that you would at, say, barnesandnoble.com. Um, basically go to the inquiry page, uh, and you can send a message to Byron and ask, is a certain book available? Now they have hundreds of thousands of titles they can get, but that's where you start. Um, then you can go to the order page and you literally type in the name of the book that you want and the author, whether you want hardback or paperback, uh, and they'll respond to you and let you know what the availability is. Uh, how much shipping is going to be for your shipping options. Uh, And you say, well, doesn't that take a little bit of extra time? It does take a little bit of extra time. So if you need your book tomorrow, this may not be the route that you want to go, although they can ship overnight. But when you know you have some books coming up, whether they're textbooks or whether there's some other books, unless it's a special order or a self-published type of title that are harder to get, uh, if it's a normal book, uh, they can probably locate it for you. So you can go to the inquiry form and ask, Then you go to the order form and type in the information and uh, respond to all the information they ask for, and uh, they'll get back with you. And if you mention uncommentary in the uh, order blank, then uh, you'll get 20% off any title. You can also subscribe to the book notes where they feature several books uh, in each note with reviews, and you can order those through booksandheartsandminds.com as well. Uh, But I really encourage you to check them out, especially if if only 10% of your book orders uh, you switch over to to them. That'll be huge for them, and it won't cost you that much more. Uh, and I'm trying to do at least that. And so I encourage you, heartsandminds.com, and mention Uncommentary Podcast for a 20% discount on most items, and they'll let you know when it applies. So yesterday, I think it was, the, um, the news about uh, Ahmed Arbery uh, broke out of Brunswick. Um, he was killed in February by two guys who um, say they believed him to be a burglar or a burglary suspect from their area, and they chased him down and ended up shooting him uh, in the middle of uh, a street there, or in the street anyway. The men who chased him down were a father and son. The the oldest, the father, had uh, worked in the DA's office uh, in Brunswick or the county and uh, was familiar with uh, the people there and the police officers, uh, had a good reputation in the community. Um, unfortunately they, uh, they chased a man that they didn't know that they believed, they say they believed to be a robbery uh, suspect. Um, as time rolled on, uh, it's going to become obvious. It appears that, uh, things were done really improperly, uh, to keep these men from having to face, uh, the consequences of what they've done. So, um, there is a, uh, there is a citizen's arrest law in Georgia, 
I do not know the details of how it works, but uh, it, I'm fairly confident it doesn't involve haranguing someone who hasn't done anything uh, or of which you have no proof that they've done anything and accosting them with your vehicle and with firearms to try to make them have a conversation with you. Um, so that's uh, that's the short of what took place in Brunswick in February. And between February, uh, the, the latter part of February, and yesterday being May the 6th at the time I'm talking about this, uh, there was very little news outside of Brunswick. Um, the police report had effectively uh, exonerated the guys, uh, the men. The, um, the DA had declined to prosecute or had stepped aside uh, and not been willing to prosecute because of potential conflict of interest, meaning... They had worked with the person before. Um, and so it's gone through a little bit of a circus down there. And now, uh, as a result, the grand jury is a grand jury is going to be impaneled in order to investigate. Uh, the attorney general of Georgia has written a letter expressing his displeasure uh, and his concern about a uh, travesty of justice. Uh, and so, again, uh, in the United States, we have a a black man who has done nothing wrong, or at least nothing that could be proven. Um, I'm not saying he's done anything wrong. I'm saying that even what they said they thought he'd done wrong wasn't proven. Um, they armed themselves out of a non-existent fear of him being armed or non-existent reality of him being armed. Um, and so uh, all these things come into play, and then they confront him, a man they do not know, uh, being armed, and he understandably responds in self-defense. Uh, so when they report it to the police, they claim they're the ones that were acting in self-defense. Um, so this is a train wreck uh, in which two white men are responsible for the death of a black man following in a long line of similar situations uh, in recent history. And so I've asked uh, Dr. Kevin Smith uh, to be my guest today on Uncommentary. He is a Southern Baptist leader from uh, the Northeast. He's with the Maryland Delaware Baptist Association or Baptist Convention, uh, and he had tweeted some things um, about his re in response to the news that had come out. And so uh, he's going to be my guest today, and we are going to talk uh, really specifically about race in America and what it's like to be raised uh, as an African American versus white person and an African African American man versus a white guy, uh, and some of the, the theological ramifications of uh, what it means to just preach the gospel in situations uh, like this. Well, I am really excited to have Dr. Kevin Smith uh, on Uncommentary today. Uh, you're not the Kevin Smith that's an actor, right? Isn't there an actor named Kevin Smith? There's an actor, there's a cornerback in the NFL, <laughs> there's a PCA pastor, and there's a director, and all of them have more money than I do. <laughs> and wasn't one of the dudes in D.C. talk named Kevin Kevin Max Smith? Isn't that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Dude, you come. Yeah, you had a long line of good, of good Kevin Smiths. Well, Kevin Smiths, anyway. The blessings of a common name. <laughs> Oh, man. Well, you are up in Maryland or Delaware or somewhere like that in the North Country. Why don't you uh, give everybody a little bit of information about yourself? Okay, I'm the executive director of the Baptist Convention of Maryland, Delaware, about 500 plus churches. Um, 
just to give you some comparison, I came here um, from being president of the Kentucky Baptist Convention, and that's about 2,400 churches. Wow. And we probably even have some state conventions with 3,600 churches. So it's a smaller, non-South state convention, um, historic, you know, 1836. So it precedes the Southern Baptist Convention, and we had messengers there at the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention. Wow. Um, before coming here, I pastored in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, pastor uh, church was a large church, mega church, largely uh, white membership. I pastored a medium-sized, uh, mostly black church, uh, medium membership, and both of those were um, wonderful, wonderful experiences. And then probably 25 years ago now, we planted a church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So uh, I've been a Tennessee Baptist, a Kentucky Baptist, and a Maryland, Delaware Baptist. Man, what a pace setter. Well, brother, you got, uh, now you're married, right? I am married. My wife, Pat, and I, we're coming up on three decades, and we have two sons, a daughter, and for a good while, we raised two great nephews, and wow. so I bought seven plane tickets before, so I claimed five kids. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and you're, you're a Harley man, or is that an Indian you drive around? Oh my goodness! No, it's a Harley, but uh, I, 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 I I've got love for Indian, but no, I ride a Harley. I ride it usually to the SBC if it's in a uh, decent location, and yeah. I have the time. Sometimes I have to fly just because of schedule. But there's a pastor friend in, in uh, Charlottesville, uh, and we like to ride down to the SBC. All right. Well, Kevin Smith, welcome to Uncommentary, brother. It's great to have you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. So um, yesterday or, or day before, I get, it may have been yesterday. I, I can't keep up with time, and, and pandemic time <laughs> doesn't do well for me, um, that the news started making national waves, I guess, uh, about the uh, murder of uh, Ahmed Arbery down in Brunswick, Georgia. Um, black man, about 25 uh, running and two white dudes, uh, an older uh, senior adult dude in his 60s, I guess, and his mid 30s son, if the news reports have all this stuff accurate, um, uh, believed or say they believed him to be uh, a suspect in some break ins near their house or something. And uh, they were determined to make a citizen's arrest of some sort and chased him down with firearms and ended up killing him uh, in the middle of the street. Um, and that just, it happened in February, started kind of making national news yesterday, be, I think because the video had been released, uh, apparently was leaked by someone, uh, and the national press called it, or at least social media called it. And then people started talking about it. Mm. Um, and so you and I, uh, know each other from Twitter for sure. And, uh, you had a series of tweets that, um, expressing empathy, expressing concern, uh, you're on uh, you're a selfie of you in a uh, in a hoodie, comparing what it's like for you to be uh, dressed in a way that would be appropriate or that you would enjoy, uh, and you certainly have the right. Versus a guy who goes to the supermarket, a picture I just saw today uh, in a clan hat, I guess using that <laughs> for his um, scarf, I guess, or his face mask for coronavirus. Uh, I would say yeah. that being in the clan is an indicator of having coronavirus or worse, but. Um, 
but you, I mean, you, you said a lot of stuff in your, in, on Twitter and it caught my attention because I agree with all of it. <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm, I want to have a conversation about what happened in Brunswick as far as we can determine and the picture that that is for us of, uh, America writ large, or in this case, America writ small, uh, in an, in a single incident, um, what the difference is between black dudes and white dudes growing up in America and our experiences and, and why so many white people don't see or understand what black people see and understand in these situations, situations like them. So, um, how old are you and where were you raised and when did you first become aware, uh, that racism was a thing? I am 53 and I was raised in the Washington DC area first in Southeast Washington, D.C., and then in Prince George's County, Maryland, which for years has been the home of the uh, largest black middle class in America. Um, I was aware of race uh, very early on. Um, I mean, I can't remember in elementary school, I can't remember my father not reminding me that I needed to pay attention in school. I needed to be twice as good. And what I did, I was going to be judged by different standards. I can't even remember that, like not being a part of how you raise a, how how, how I was raised and even how my friends was raised. Um, I will say, you know, I always encourage uh, white brothers and sisters and black brothers and sisters to kind of realize the big categories of black and white within American history, but then still realize the various categories within black and white so that we don't generalize or stereotype one another. Yeah. So I've come from a very distinct kind of black experience. When I say a distinct kind of black experience, I, was in uh, when I was growing up in Washington D.C. in the '60s and '70s. Washington D.C. and even '80s was called Chocolate City. That's how uh, majority black the population was. Mm. There was a black mayor, then it was a charismatic black mayor, <laughs> Marion Barry. Well, I remember him. Um, they're large black churches. They're black public officials. Uh, I went to a D.C. public schools and elementary school and. You know, there there are people that are black that kind of remember the first time they had a black teacher. Uh, I was in D.C., so I, I remember the first time I had a white teacher. Wow. Um, and so, um, you know, so people's experiences there. There's the big and the, there's the big black and white categories, but there's just so much stuff down within those categories. Um, <clears throat> like I have great conversations with black people from Georgia. Um, that are in their 40s and remember the Klan demonstrating at their high school when they were graduating. And um, and I'm like, I'm from D.C. I've never seen the Klan. They would get their butts whooped in D.C. <laughs> um, I mean, in the 60s or the se- in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up. So um, that's kind of my understanding. But I, I always like to come into these conversations just saying, um I come from a different slice and I, and I think it's a minority slice mm. of the black community. When I say minority slice of the black community, um, Washington, DC, Detroit, 
uh, Maynard Jackson, Atlanta, yeah, yeah. Uh, Harold Wa- I mean, Washington, Chicago. Uh, there, there's, there's been a few different places where a black child could grow up and see black people exercising a lot of economic, political, and legal authority mm-hmm. and just think that's how life goes. But those places are a minority. I mean, you see, I named about five cities. Right. Um, and so I always like to come into that conversation like that. Then my father, who was a graduate of Hampton University, a historically black college mm-hmm. in Virginia. I went to Hampton. Um, I went to a historically black college. I went to a majority, mostly 95% white Catholic high school, but I'm growing up in a chocolate city. I'm growing up then in the suburbs of the largest black middle class. And then I went to a historic black college. Um, so when I'm 22, like when I talk to people in their twenties now, black people, I realize that they are defining and getting a kind of identity formation that I've never had to get. Mm. Um, you know, my parents were the James Brown, I'm black and I'm proud type people. Yeah. And so, um, did your daddy have James Brown's hair? My dad, no, you know what? My dad had, I used to be so jealous. He had a soft, he had soft hair, so his afro was pretty. Mine was nappy, but his was pretty. Uh, but it was the, it was the, um, it wasn't the militant side of black power, black consciousness, but it was the Black is beautiful side of black consciousness, black power. So they would celebrate black music, black culture, African heritage, things like that. And so um, I'm saying all that to say we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. But I'm like 20. I'm, I'm 22 out of college. When I realized like, oh, yeah, I was raised in a certain kind of black environment that a lot of black people in America weren't, uh, weren't exposed to as I began to go to college and then meet black people from North Carolina and yeah. South Carolina and Georgia and Mississippi and New Jersey and New York and Connecticut yeah. and just all these other types of places. But I think that's important because um, I, I think a lot of white folks think that the they hear the term, and this is ubiquitous, black the black community. And so whether it's a newscaster or whether it's someone who claims to speak for the black community, that a person probably can in a, in one locale, uh, authentically claim to be a spokesperson for the black community, that particular black community. But there's no such thing as the black community that is nationwide. It's not monolithic. There's uh, every stripe of politics and every stripe of sociology Every stripe of family type unit exists within um, the the African American experience, as does in the Anglo American experience, or probably the Asian American experience and the Spanish American experience. So, yeah, I think that I think that is I think that's very very important. Um, you know, there's no monolithic expression of the black community. There are political and there are political philosophical debates among black people. You yeah. can read some of the things of. Uh, uh, second half of the 19th century, read some of the disagreements and tensions along the lines of Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois mm-hmm. and things like that. So um, <clears throat> there is no one. I mean, uh, uh, Frederick, D- yeah, any significant black leader has had, historically, has had um, the ability to represent 
certain parts of uh, the black experience, but they've also had pushback from people who didn't think they were representing the black experience. I mean, there are, I mean, I don't know about today just because of the video that came out yesterday, but I mean, you can find middle-class, bougie, successful black folk who will deflect or deny the existence of racism, just like some white folks will. So, I mean, it is a, it is a very broad spectrum. So that's why I think the big categories historically of black and white are helpful categories in American history. Uh, but then just realize how big those categories is, how those big categories are. Yeah. Um, But I begin to be aware of that. Um, uh, as a child, you know, um, I didn't have any bad experiences as a teenager, but I mean, as a teenager driving, you knew you didn't want to have a bad encounter with the Prince George's County police. Mm -hmm. Now I will say this back in those days of the late seventies and eighties, it wasn't, you might get shot you just might get billy clubbed. Um, but you know, nobody even (laughs) younger people probably don't know what that is anymore. I don't even know police walking around with a stick anymore, but, but still it was the whole point of there could be conflict um, with the police and some of that stuff would go along racial lines. And then some of that stuff would also go along, um, economic lines. One of the hardest things in some of these discussions is, um, <clears throat> making sure we don't create any false dichotomy between race and class and realize that in a fallen world, um, both those things at many times can be affecting a scenario. Um, and so, um, you know, uh, a black man with money like O.J. Simpson can have a different experience in the legal system than a poor black man. But also uh, a white person with money can have a legal a different yeah. experience in the legal system than yeah. a white person without money, like the um, like the young swimmers from Stanford University. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have money, it just changes the game. Um, so, uh, uh, again, you know, racism is real in our country. But I think it's really helpful to realize that there's a lot within the category of black. And then there's a lot within the category of white. I mean, you can say I'm comfortable saying since we've been in these American colonies, Bible believing Christians have failed to address the issues of the image of God as regarded Africans and then slaves and then free free people and freedmen and then everything all through that. I'm comfortable saying that, but I'm also comfortable saying, Hey, if you read this book called Baptist see black, you'll see that in the forties and the fifties randomly throughout the South Southern Baptist pastors were thrown out of their church for saying that the church would be open to all people. And they were willing to baptize and receive uh, back then. And they would say Negro members. Mm-hmm. Again, the, 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 the two help, the two categories are helpful, <clears throat> um, but there's just, just be mindful of what, is within those categories. Now, I will say this um, to the point of um, of yesterday, and I look back, and so I guess I did tweet yesterday because I tweeted Tuesday night at 11.53 p.m. <laughs> so I was stewing on it yeah. for a long time. Yeah. This was like late-night tweet. <laughs> uh, hey, hey, man, you know, never trust late-night <laughs> tweeting. You don't know what you'll do. Um, but the white guy walking around in the KK hood, mm-hmm. The uh, black guy could be murdered for being black and the D.A. having to decide whether to prosecute white shooters mm-hmm. and the high schoolers playfully declaring and making a video about their feelings about, quote, niggers. Mm-hmm. I think um, those kind of things can be common 
um, just based upon skin color. So uh, out, out of all the complexity I described within the big categories of black and white, there's still just the common denominator of skin color can be used against you. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who uh, told me one time he uh, he's pretty successful. He works in, in IT and uh, has a company that he runs on the side and uh, has a great family. And this was um, this was probably not too long after Ferguson, um, maybe maybe over a year. And we were at lunch one day, and and um, he said he said Marty he said it's really hard to explain. He said um, there's there's being black, and then there's the experience of being black. And he mm-hmm. said I'm comfortable in my own skin, and he said I'm comfortable being black. He said, but the experience of being black, and he was talking about himself. He wasn't projecting it upon anyone else. But he said, the experience of being black for me is like going outside and all around me, there are conversations taking place. And I know the conversations are taking place and I can hear things are being said, but I don't understand any of the words. They're all muddled. Mm. And I just wonder, is there... Do you identify with that in any way um, that that there's a, a sense in which there's a an ex uh, an extraneous culture going around you that you don't feel like you're supposed to be a part of? I do. Let me say I do, but so I do, comma, but um, <laughs> yeah, I get it. So part of the narrative I gave you of my life was those um, four years was those high school years at mostly white Catholic schools Mm -hmm. and building friendships and going over my friends' houses and quote unquote seeing how the other half lives. Mm -hmm. Um, And so through team sports, uh, basketball, football, through friendships in high school, um, you know, my black journey and development, my journey and development as a black man in America did have, um, has had components of interaction um, in white family and home settings that were very helpful in high school, asking business owners, how'd you get to where you are? Mm-hmm. How'd you get to where you are? What'd you learn about this? And how'd you do this? And understanding the importance of networking and understanding. If there's like a, if there's a game, quote unquote, game to America, um, you know, the people don't understand the language teach their kids how to play it. And I think with the comment, I totally agree with the comments your friends making, because a lot of people can grow up with experiences where they never get to hear people who know how to play the game mm. talking about the game. Mm. Um, so, yeah, but I, I still certainly understand that. And again, you know, I think, um, you know, just a, just as a just as a clear testimony of the gospel, I think that's one of the Galatians three twenty eight things of the kingdom of God. And so, what was muddy before, I can ask people about because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, mm-hmm. and I want you to interpret that for me. I want you to clear that up for me. So, um, you know, I don't understand something. I'll call my Trump supporting white brother in Christ and say, Hey, tell me what this means. Why, 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 why do you not think X, X or Y is crazy? Or why do you think X or Y is good? Mm-hmm. Or I'll call my 
white or black Democrat supporting friend and say, hey, how come you don't think X and Y is crazy? Or why do you think X and Y is good? Mm -hmm. And so um, the importance of relationships and being able to know people across different lines and be able to have valid relationships, uh, authentic, I should say, relationships, I think that's part of the Galatians 3.28 wonder that the Jew and the Gentile would be one in Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, Men and women would be one in Christ. Rich and poor would be one in Christ. Um, and so I totally agree and understand your friend's sentiment. And I just think part of my biography and then also just my broader relationships in the body of Christ have provided means of, of, uh, of interpretation. I mean, when I'm in Kenya, I don't speak Kizzy, but right. I feel very comfortable because I know so many people in Kenya. I always have a Kizzy speaker around me. Right. And, <laughs> and this is, this is important. I always have a Kizzy speaker that I trust. Right. Yeah. When um when there's a situation like when Mr. Arbery uh, is killed in the middle of the street or uh, Michael Brown or John Crawford in that Walmart in Ohio or um, the drummer, uh, believer, killed uh, on the side of the road in Florida when his car broke down or the young man killed in his apartment by the lady police officer in Dallas. And, I mean, you could probably go on longer than I can with those kinds of situations. There is a lament in uh, among black folks that I never, ever, ever, ever see among white folks unless it is a blood relative. So if if we woke up tomorrow to news that uh, a white dude had been shot on the side of the interstate, white folks do not. They don't enter into that. There, there's nothing of my experience. I will say my experience, but I'm going to ex- extrapolate it a little because nobody mm-hmm. I've ever known <laughs> behaves this way. Nobody's going to go to Twitter and start a, a hashtag for a guy who was you know, killed on the side of the road. The assumption is going to be if he was shot by the cops that he was doing something wrong. That's the, the broad assumption is going to be that he was doing something wrong. Uh, and he shouldn't have been doing that thing wrong. And it's very, I mean, we are anchored in that authoritarian type of view, especially as it regards law enforcement. And so I don't see that entering into a mint when white folks are killed. And I don't often see it when black folks are killed, but I regularly see it from numerous of my black friends, men and women, but even men anguishing over uh, a, a man killed unjustly. What do you think has formed that? And I think that's an accurate view. I, I don't think I'm missing it too much. But what what is the difference there between the white experience in America and the black experience in America that causes you to lament a guy that I assume you have never met before, uh, Ahmed Arbery, uh, or a John Crawford, or uh, a Michael Brown, or anyone like that, whereas most white folks have maybe some sympathy, but we're not going to head over to Twitter and start talking about, you know, how long the Lord and all those kinds of things. What, what has created that difference in, in the way that we experience life and death? I think, um, so existentially, well, let me say two things. Culturally, um, many, many white people come from the mindset of a Western autonomous individualism and so some of the gut core ways they think about things kind of come 
um, from Europe. Many black people, the way they've been raised by their grandparents and the way their family units have functioned, especially down in the deep South, mm. um, still have Africanisms in them or traces of Africa. And one of the strong traces is communalism. Mm. And so we're community. And you can even see that among Hispanic people and Asian people. Uh, I mean, the autonomous individuals out there, I'm for myself, people in the world are like the white people. <laughs> yeah. The Hispanic, the people, the people of Asian background, and you go to South America, Africa, all those kind of places. Those places are communal places. Yeah. North America, the United States, Canada, Europe are very individualistic places. Mm. So I think that, that whole ethos flowers things, plus existentially, um, you know, when a white guy is shot by mistake or in an unjust scenario or like I remember a white woman, I think up in Boston or somewhere was shot by police mistakenly or something. Uh, you know, white people can say, well, that was bad. That was sad. I'm sorry that happened. But when a black person is shot, like video a few days ago, black mm -hmm. people say that could be me. Mm. Black people say that could be my kids. Yeah. I have kids in their twenties. That could be my kids because uh, 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 it wasn't a mistake. It, it wasn't just a cop going off. It was something that was specifically done because my their skin looks like the skin of my kids. Mm. Um, and so there's an existential connection to that pain as, all, as well. So there's 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 communalism, and then there's an existential reality, and then there's the historical reality of just the black experience in America. And I don't care how successful you become and how well you play the game, um, you can still have things happen in your life that remind you um, that you played the game well, but you still got black skin. Like when Harvard professor Gates was yeah. arrested yeah, on his Gates. own steps mm -hmm. of his own house. I yep. mean, so, you know, um, success and money doesn't even, I mean, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean, for eight years, the president of the United States had people calling him nigger. Yeah. So you can get the most powerful office in the free world if it doesn't free you from black skin. Yeah. Um, so I think that's some of the differences in reality and, and, um, and, and how people experience these things. But I mean, you know, I give it to, you know, I give it to, uh, I give it to a lot of the white ethos. It has allowed them to do well in this culture and uh, that doggy eat dog mentality, the ability to look over stuff, the ability to, disconnect from stuff. I mean, it allows corporate boards to make decisions that have, that don't care about the impact on people. It allows executive leaders to like make decisions and lay people off without any mindset for the impact on people. I can just kind of overlook the humanity and mm -hmm. think about stockholder return. It allows politicians to do things. I mean, you know, that, that kind of mentality that dis I think that can disconnect you from fellow humanity um, sometimes has benefits in the game of the American dream and the American success story. But I think that's the main difference, communalism versus individualism. And then also white people never have to say, oh, that could have been me. Yeah. No, it's really easy to say, well, they must have been doing something wrong. Um, and I think to hold the whole game together, there has to be this delusion of law and order or blind justice. Yeah. Um, I saw a Christian the other day tweet, well, we know we got to remember that justice is blind. Well, I mean, the very fact <laughs> of this story and two months later and all that shows you that justice is not blind. So, you know, as a white, as a black, 
as a black man who's a follower of Jesus Christ, I get irritated when thoughtful white Christians can't even critique that statement. Stop yeah. saying justice is blind. Yeah. If it was blind, we wouldn't be having these scenarios. That's right. <laughs> Lady justice has a blind fold, but that's not the same thing. <clears throat> as I was uh, reading through some of the uh, narrative of what had happened uh, in February in Brunswick, uh, it, it just becomes disturbingly clear that uh, even the police report, uh, which is about a page and a half long, it, once you take out all the timestamps and uh, titles and car numbers and all that stuff, um, they get a report that a man's been shot. They start to uh, respond. There's a report that he's already passed away. They interview the men who shot him or man who shot him and his, uh, I forget which one was involved in the struggle, but uh, the one who shot him and then the, the parent or the son, so the relative that was also there involved in chasing him down. They take their word for it, and even at taking their word for it, they incriminate themselves. Uh, they basically confess to murdering this man in cold blood in the street, but the police write it up as if the man deserved to die and nothing actually was wrong with the situation. And it's only when the video comes out where everybody outside of the police department and the DA's office and who, whoever else down there uh, can see what happened, that there's any kind of call. And as of, I don't know, three hours ago, four hours ago, uh, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which can only investigate local crimes when they're called upon by the uh, local authorities, uh, had finally been called in, but they're not, they hadn't been called in to investigate the crime itself or, or how the, how it was handled. They were called in to find out who leaked the video. So, <laughs> I mean, the, and, and, and that kind of scenario, black people say that is perfect white folk mode of operation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally get it. And what I was, what I was going to say a minute ago was from the inception of the country, uh, from the inception before the country was even a thing and it was just an idea. Through May the 7th, 2020, there's never been a moment in time that the majority of population and in authority hasn't been white folks. So even if, even if white people were trying at all times in all places to do the best that they could to govern everyone or to be involved in government at every level, we do have inherent blind spots in the way that things have functioned because typically – they have functioned uh, to our advantage because the laws are written by white people. The judges have by and large been white people. The presidents have by and large been white people with the exception of one. Uh, the governors have by and large been white people, you know, senators, representatives, on and on and on and on and on from the idea of an America until today. So even if we were trying to do everything right, the inherent blind spots that white people have would have accidentally created injustices that we did not see until somebody said, Hey, this is not working right. Well, then when you throw in the actual reality, which is sin and fallenness and people who don't really want to do everything right. And so many people are in it for their own deal. It's really hard to fathom that there are people who cannot conceive of systemic injustice that somehow or another that legal systems and governments and the local DA and whoever else somehow escaped the effects of the fall, except personally they're separated from God 
But that separation and that worldliness and everything else somehow functions righteously within the systems of government. Somehow they've escaped the corruption, and whatever those principalities and powers are doing, it must not have anything to do with government. They must just be out on the golf course causing people to ask for mulligans and say bad words or something. It's almost... It's mind-blowing, especially, as you said, with people who have an understanding of the doctrine of the fall. I mean, so, you know, an archaeological, unbiblical brother or sister, I give them a break. Sure. I mean, but an ordained, <laughs> pres- an ordained Presbyterian who has good theology, uh, it just infuriates me. Yeah. Um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar set up a system. Pharaoh set up a system. Ahab and Jezebel had a system. Uh, 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 sin, sin from powerful individuals becomes systematic because they extend that thing out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bank where I had a mortgage, uh, the bank where I have a mortgage a few years back had to pay a penalty for charging um, higher interest rates to black and Hispanic borrowers. Wow. Um, and you can't. One person alone couldn't do that. That had to be like several managers and yeah. several people and several branches. And so, I mean, it, it had to be a system that people put together. Yeah. Um, systems of systems, governments, all that stuff is not inanimate. It's run by people. Mm-hmm. I can't, I, I've never understood with people with a doctrine of the fall, with a biblical <laughs> understanding of the fall and humanity act like systems are inanimate objects. Yeah. We bind we bind all these fallen people together, and some kind of righteous result it comes out of it. I don't get it. It is, uh, and the thing is, the thing is, the shame is younger people can think, and they just are beginning to just think a lot of pastors are a joke. Yeah, um, not because of their, not because of anything other than them observing that pastors intellectual, biblical, and theological inconsistent. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we say to people who are like in uh, in this situation where uh, there's obviously um, an injustice has occurred and somebody jumps up and says, and and this is this might be a little bit of an uh, exaggeration, but it's not much of an exaggeration because I've actually seen people write this on Twitter. Just preach the gospel. If we would just preach the gospel, (laughs) this stuff would stop. So what what are your thoughts on that? Well, my first thought is I'm glad I'm not still in elementary school because there's consequences <laughs> as an adult for just walking up and busting somebody in the nose. I'm so sick of those guys. They're wieners and they're cowards and they're scared to apply the whole word of God. Paul said, I have not shunned to prepare to you the whole counsel of God. They're scared to apply it to their people because they don't want to make this tither mad or this buddy mad or this friend mad. They, 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 they are cowards and God will deal with uh, the results of our work. Uh, Bible said we receive the rewards for those things done in mm. our body. Yep. Um, just preach the gospel. Paul said, preach the whole counsel of God. Mm. We don't just sit up and declare the mechanics of salvation. We are to make disciples and teach them to observe all things that the Lord has commanded. Those guys, those preach the gospel guys, only preach the gospel guys, they make me sick and I want to bust them in their nose. Paul says, but we preach Christ and him crucified. And then Paul writes letters to the churches to exhort them and how to live out godliness and obey the commands and the law of God. Yeah. So those guys are either truncated in their understanding of the gospel or they're unrighteous and hypocritical and hide, trying to hide behind that so they won't have to repent or they're just cowards and punks and scared of their members. So 
truncated is a good word, and it's a word that I've used a lot to talk about uh, this situation. Um, and by the way, I was amending you. It didn't come across, but I was amending you as you were preaching just then. Um, uh, it is truncated because uh, I think the scripture is clear that there is a, this is how I've expressed it. There's a core of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And without the faith in that activity in, the, in Christ's death on our behalf and his resurrection from the dead, there is no salvation. I think the Bible's pretty straightforward on that. But there's also a, the implications of the gospel, uh, and that is a changed life. Discipleship isn't about simply revisiting what happened to me on March 21st, 1982, over and over again, though I'm thankful that it happened to me. Salvation is revisiting what happened to me yesterday. Salvation is thinking about what God's going to do in me tomorrow. The sanctification aspect is it just as much the gospel as the justification aspect, and we can't brush it aside hoping that if we just tell somebody about Jesus often enough, then society somehow is going to be rectified. Uh, I'm not preaching a postmodern, uh, not a post postmillennialism or anything like that. I believe things are going to continue to get worse and worse and then, you know, until Christ comes. But part of our bearing witness and part of our being the light seems to be that we talk about God's righteous standard, which is his just standard, which means we point out when things are unjust because they do not reflect the righteousness of God. When things are just, it reflects the righteousness of God. When they're unjust, it does not reflect the righteousness of God. And for us to just say, just preach the gospel, ignores all these things that don't reflect the righteousness of God in exchange for literally just saying, if you don't believe, I don't know, you know, you're going to go to hell. If you do believe you're going to go to heaven and it'll be the sweet by and by. And as long as you're praying and reading your Bible, then that's really all you're responsible for. It's such a truncated gospel. And Peter didn't do that. And John didn't do that. And Paul didn't do that. And James didn't do that. So, and Jude didn't do that. And so I guess um, those just preach the gospel guys in the 20th century in the United States are more spiritual and more on point than the apostles in the new Testament. It is amazing. My guest today on uncommentary has been Dr. Kevin. I didn't even call you doctor to start with. Sorry about that. Hey brother. I, I look, I've always pastored brother, sister churches. We are <laughs> brother, sister, this brother, sister, and you, and you, you wouldn't know this from, uh, and from from being in Tennessee, but in Weston and East Kentucky, the most affectionate greeting you can get is uh, after you preach and you shaking hands, and some old lady comes up to you and she says, "Hey, preacher!" Yep. That's the most affectionate yep. greeting you can get, my brother. That is it. That is it. <laughs> hey, let me make sure you understand this. I was slow in my development, but I want to make sure you. I do want to make this point. The third tweet was really what I was most discouraged about because I was talking about the expectations that my grandparents had for my father and my mm-hmm. aunts and then the expectation that my father and my aunts had for me and my cousin mm-hmm. and then the expectations that I have for my children. That mm-hmm. was really the blues that I was singing that night. Um, What's going on? Mercy, mercy me. Make me want to holler. Yes, yeah. sir. I hear you, brother. Marvin Gaye gets you through. Hey, I got, I got a hymn book at home and we do family devotions, but Sometimes Marvin Gaye need to push you down the road a little bit. Sam Cooke, brother. I mean, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, there's strength in those songs. Good night. Uh, so you're on Twitter. It's and, at Smith Baptist, right? At Smith Baptist, yes, sir. All right. You got any books out? Are you have you uh, are you published? 
I've written chapters in books. So I've written chapters in a book for um, that was honoring Tom Nettles when he began to retire. I wrote yeah. a chapter in a family ministry book at um, Southern Seminary that still gets used a lot. I wrote a chapter, and uh, I've written about five or six chapters in books. That's about the extent of my attention span. And so yeah. <laughs> um, I've enjoyed that. And that's been encouraging. Plus, I mean, that's just what I read anyway. Yeah. I like edited volumes with um, multiple authors, particularly some of those things like um, B&H had the Perspective series. Yeah. Of, mm-hmm. I think Zondervan was Five Views. I like those kind of series. Um, so I've written some chapters. And I would, um, maybe before I go to glory, I might get a book out on Black Baptists and how they responded to unrest in the 60s. But... uh so far, I've written chapters and books, and I do a lot of preaching and um, pastors conferences and revivals and things like that. That's where I everything else, everything I do is the pulpit plus. Mm-hmm. You know, everything you know, everything is what I do other than preach in the pulpit and be with God's people. I love being in congregations. That's awesome. Um, <clears throat> my, my burden and my weight is uh, definitely that we at this moment would be a different kind of people about what Peter calls strange and travelers and sojourners. And since the 17th century, the Christian church has had no distinct witness regarding how we thought about things of black and white. Mm. And, um, that's sad. And I think it grieves the spirit and quenches the spirit. And it's probably the, one of the reasons why we subsequently not had serious revival in our country as well. Yeah. Well, all right, preacher, thank you for being with me today. My pleasure. Thank you again for the invitation, brother. As always, thank you for listening to Uncommentary. If you'd like to keep up with me on Twitter, it's at Marty Duran. If you'd like to follow the podcast account, it's at Uncommentary Pod. Please rate and review. And whichever podcatcher you listen to, uh, whether it's uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Podbean uh, or Overcast or CastBox, whichever one you use, uh, if you can rate and review, then that would be awesome. It just helps with search results and gives some credibility uh, to the podcast itself. Uh, and as you have an opportunity, if you would promote it, whether you uh, put the link from uncommentarypodcast.com uh, on your Facebook page or if you tweet the link or retweet the uh, the initial broadcast that it's live, uh, anything like that to help spread the word is always appreciated. And as always, uh, Solideo Gloria, this is Marty Duran for Uncommentary Podcast. Uncommentary Podcast.